The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would grab a New Testament and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be there in a few moments. 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's wonderful to be back with you once again this evening. It's good to have some visitors with us. Zoe and I have some family in town, and so that's always a wonderful thing. I know others had family in town today. It truly is a blessing when we get to spend some time with them, and especially when we get to worship God together with them. I hope that so far it's been encouraging and edifying to you, and I hope that the lesson continues to benefit you spiritually this evening. First Timothy chapter 2 is where we'll be really just for a short little while this evening. We are uh, going to conclude this evening a study that we started uh, three weeks ago or, or three Sundays ago, this being the third Sunday, concerning modesty. Real um, fancy title, I know, creative title. Um, but that's simply what we've been talking about. We've been talking about things that concern modest apparel and also modest character. The text is seen in First Timothy 2 and verse 9 beginning, where Paul says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. We've emphasized before in these last three lessons, especially what we read of in verse 10 and the not but statement, not with that which is merely outward of the hair being put up in, in, in braids and plated with gold and such, but especially what is proper for women professing godliness. And essentially what he's saying is what is proper apparel for a woman who professes godliness are the good works of that following statement. The good works of obedience, those works which are God-ordained. And essentially what Paul is saying, as we've noted, is that our outward apparel needs to reflect an inward man who has the fear and reverence and respect in mind set toward God and His will. And that's expressed especially through the obedience of His Word. We want people to view in us not something of an ostentatious nature or as we talked about last Sunday, a sexually attractive nature. We don't want the attention to be taken away from God and put on us. Rather, we want them to see Christ living in us. We want them to see one who is rightly described as godly, wishing to do God's will, and that being expressed in a congruous way with the dress that they wear from day to day. We noted several different things in detail, I think, concerning the very text and the language seen and the, the context of this section of Scripture in First Timothy chapter 2. We've gone into some detail concerning application. I would especially refer your attention to last Sunday's lessons on ostentatious dress, which is the end of the spectrum, which is excess of dress that is flashy and, and trying to draw attention to self instead of Jesus. And then the other end of the spectrum, which would be uh, a lack of dress, insufficient clothing, which would reveal what the Bible defines as nakedness, which we would describe, I think rightly so, as we studied last Sunday, as sexually attractive dress. The Christian should not be guilty of wearing either such ideas of clothing, but should be professing godliness with the good works. But we also understood that 
the good works, while those should be what defines us as Christians, our good works before God and submission to his will, that he is very much saying the outward apparel that we have on reflects who we are on the inside as a Christian who is one wanting to submit to God. So it is telling us that there is, for lack of a better phrase, a lack of a better description, a dress code for Christians. God wants us to dress a certain way, and to fail in dressing a certain way would be to profess something other than godliness, and it would also be to be sinning, committing lawlessness, transgressing a law of God, especially concerning our dress. But I want us to especially focus this evening not on necessarily any detail. That's what the first three lessons was for concerning the text and the language and the specific applications as it is regarding those two opposite ends of the spectrum of modest apparel. And focus a little more on verse 10 where he says that instead of dressing in this way, you adorn yourself in a way that is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And I think it's needless to say that this also applies to men. We've noted that and emphasized that Christians should dress in a way which is proper for those who are professing godliness. It's the Greek word theos bia, and it means the fear or reverence of God as Vine defines it. And you profess that through obeying God, through your good works. And it is true to say, as it is pertaining to the text, that the basic and fundamental principles of godliness we see throughout Scripture, if those are characteristic of us as Christians, as they should be, then that will ensure we will be dressing modestly. Now, I want to pause there to emphasize something we've already emphasized before, that modesty is something that is taught on in many places, but what happens is people stop short of making the application and drawing the line. See, it's pretty easy to say that we're to be Christians, we're to be, we're to be godly, we're to be holy like we'll talk about in a minute, we're to be focused on God's things, and we're to be trying to let Jesus shine through us. That should be the emphasis of our life and of our character and everything that we do. And if we're doing that, then we're going to know what modest dress is. But I would ask the question, what other commandment of God that is a negative command, don't do this, abstain from this, flee from this, does he give where he doesn't give us direct guidelines? That this is where it is sin. Stay away from it. When has he ever just said, go along with the fundamental principles of Christianity, but there's no specific application to this. You'll figure it out yourself. He's always given us a law in his word. We noted that as it pertains to the language of modesty. It means orderly. It means arranging ourselves in apparel that is of good behavior. It is orderly. And where there is order, there is law. And where there is law, there is order. And so if there is a type of modest or orderly apparel concerning a divine instruction, then he's going to give us specific instructions. And so while these principles of godliness are going to take care of our dress and ensure that we are dressing modestly, only as they are reinforced and undergirded with the guidelines that we've already established. I want to just very quickly before we go on, read a quote that I read in a previous lesson where a brother in Christ actually wrote an article about modesty, and they took this approach that it's it's enough to say that we're to be trying to let Christ shine through us. And he went through the language of 1 Timothy chapter 2, but he said we can't draw a specific line. This is what he said after going through the language of 1 Timothy 2. He said, someone may wonder, but none of this answers the question of what specifically we can or cannot wear or where that line is between modest and immodest. He says, agree or disagree, but if we have to debate the exact line in inches on someone's leg or torso, then I have to wonder if we are asking the right questions. 
regulate yourself with a heart for God. When you get dressed, think of your motivation. Know that your body belongs to God first, then to your spouse. Ask, does this reflect an inner attitude that God finds precious? Is this proper for professing godliness? Be honest. You'll likely know the answer and what to do next. Essentially, what he describes is someone that might bring up the question, well, I understand all these fundamental principles, but I'm still lost as to the application. And essentially what he says is keep on working on the fundamental principles and you'll figure it out magically yourself at one point. That's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. God's never going to leave us in an unsettled predicament. If we went along with that kind of logic, then we could say it's wrong to preach any specific application on any specific topic where we're drawing a line and stepping on toes and making those practical applications because really what God wants us to do is figure it out ourselves after we understand the fundamental principles of what it means to be a Christian. The Apostle Paul speaks of a law of Christ that he is held under in 1 Corinthians 9. It's the same law that we're under today. We're not without law toward God. And he's been very specific as to what modest dress is. So these principles of godliness four of which we're going to look at this evening. I know there are more, of course, in the New Testament. These are going to ensure that we are dressing modestly, but we've got to establish the guidelines of modest dress, namely that which covers nakedness as defined by God throughout Scripture. I think we've settled it. What ranges from the shoulder down to the knee, front and back. And if you have questions about that, I'd love to study with you further, but I think we've established that in Scripture thus far. And so we proceed and to the rest of the lesson. These fundamental principles of godliness, if they are applied in the specific realm of modest dress that we've already defined, are going to ensure that we will be dressed modestly. But that has to characterize who we are. Are you those who profess godliness with good works? Am I one who professes godliness with good works? If I am, then I'll be dressing modestly according to God's standard. And so what we need to do when we consider modest dress along with those specific guidelines is simply apply those principles of godliness that we know good and well in Scripture. And I want to consider the first one as it pertains to holiness. Modest dress is holy dress, as defined by God. If we're holy people, our dress will be modest, because if our dress is immodest, logically, we are unholy. We're not right before God. We are not in a relationship with Him. We see the call to holiness in First. Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, as we see it also in other places, where Peter said, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. I want us to notice first what the standard is, God. He said, Be holy, for I am holy. He doesn't say, Be holy insofar as it pertains to the character of so-and-so to your left or so-and-so to your right. He doesn't say be holy or set apart as it pertains to a standard of some other denomination that you may be looking at or some other principle of man. He says be holy as I am holy. And the Greek word, as I think we know, is hagios, and it fundamentally signifies separated as fine defines it. He says be separated as I am separated, and the context tells us what he means by that. He says in verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The former lusts, as in their ignorance, are those things of sin. Be holy as God is holy, as you're set apart from those former lusts. And we might ask the question, to what degree? 
Holiness is complete separation. We read that in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, where John says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's speaking of the darkness of sin and error. He's pure. And I think we can help ourselves flesh out that concept of holiness as we come to the understanding that the words in the Greek are related to each other, those words holiness and what is translated pure. Holiness is hagios, and that's from the same root as hognos, which is pure. That's what we read in 1 John 3 and verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And that very context speaks to the same concept of separation, that is from sin, and to the side of God as he is holy in this very context. Verse 4, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. He's completely free from it. That's purity. There's not contamination there. There's complete separation from what? From sin. And so purity is free from defilement or contamination. That's what holiness is. It's separation completely from that which is sin. And that should govern every single decision that we make in fear. He continues in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17 to say this, And if you call on the Father, who's the Father? He's the one who's holy and He just called you to be holy. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. He's saying, if God is holy and He's called you to be holy as you are holy and you're calling upon Him, you'd better work out your salvation in fear because he's going to judge you according to the standard of himself as he is holy and he's going to do it without partiality. And that would apply in every single realm of Christianity and obedience, especially as it pertains to our study of modesty. This is not something you can take or leave. This is not Jeremiah's opinion. This is not the opinion of any other Christian. This is a God-ordained precept. And we must keep it. And so when we study things like this, we conduct ourselves in fear, knowing that we're going to be judged by that very thing. We've got to know how to possess our own vessels, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, in sanctification and honor, that is our bodies, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. For God did not call us to uncleanness, he says, but in holiness. And we warn each other with this next verse. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his spirit. We know that modest dress is that which covers the body sufficiently, at least in part. And so we possess our vessels in that kind of sanctification and honor, knowing we're going to be judged by God. But I want us to consider also what the vehicle to holiness is. Be separated. That's great. How do we get there? And I would suggest to you that it is a constant process where we're further and further separating ourselves from what is sinful and further and further consecrating ourselves to God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says, let us go on and perfect holiness in the fear of God. Bring it to maturity or completion. But the way we get there is through submission to the truth, which goes back to our introduction. Apply these general principles of godliness, and if you truly are, you're going to ensure yourself that you're dressed modestly but it's not without the specific standard of modesty. It's, it's by the truth that we're sanctified. And the truth gets very specific. We see it in Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John 17 and verse 14. He says to God, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, he's speaking of their sanctification, their holiness. 
And he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're sanctified as God is keeping them from Satan. Verse 16 says they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. But then he gives the practicality of sanctification and holiness. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And so if we're to be holy people, we're only going to be able to achieve that by submitting to God's truth. That's what's going to set us apart from the rest. It divides the sinful from the righteous. It shows who is right with God. And so holiness, as it's applied here, can only be or it can only be achieved, can only be accomplished through submission to not just part of God's will, but his entire will. And so we can conclude that holiness is not simply being better than the world. Think about that with regard to modesty. But look, I'm not dressed like them over there, but that's not what holiness is. God said, be holy, not as as you're more holy than them, but be holy as I am holy. He's the standard. And we might have that labeled by others as radical Christianity, as extremism, but that's exactly what we're called to. God is so special and so holy. So holiness is not simply being better than the world. Notice Romans 12 and verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world. Certainly, we're not to be conformed to the sinful world. But notice the standard that we are to be conformed to. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And this would apply in any realm of Christianity, any realm of our thought as children of God. He's saying instead of thinking like the world regarding modesty for our lesson, instead, let your mind be transformed into something completely different by God's word. And you prove to the world that it's good, perfect and acceptable. Holiness is not simply being better than the world. It's going to happen if we are truly holy. We will be so much better than the world in regard to our being right before God. James chapter 1 calls us the first fruits of God's creation. That means we're the cream of the crop if we're submitting to his will. He is what he, we are what he has intended us to be as those who are submitting to his will. The people who are in rebellion are not. But it's sim- more than being simply better than the world. It's being conformed to the will of God. And therefore, it's more than simply being better than other Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, the apostle Paul condemned the false apostles for using this kind of logic. He said, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Well, well, I'm just as good as he is, or I'm, I'm better than he is. And, and that's not wise because there's not an infallible standard among us. That comes from God. And so holiness is not simply being better than other Christians. Well, you know, so-and-so doesn't have it down, but I'm a little better than they are, and so I am dressed modestly. No, God is our standard, and it's not following what you've always been told. And we stress that. It's not following what you always thought was right, what you always were, were taught was right. It's not simply maintaining a good conscience. It's maintaining the conscience that is learned by the will of God. In Acts 23 and verse 1, in one of his trials, Paul said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And what he's doing is he's manifesting himself and defending his true character, his pious character, his character that is honest. 
the character that he's expressed throughout his entire life, one of integrity. But what he's not saying is that he's never sinned. He's saying, even when I persecuted Christians, I had a good conscience, not because I was right, but because I thought I was right. I would never do something that I knew was wrong. But that's obviously not enough. Godliness and modest apparel and holiness and modest apparel is not simply doing what you've always been told was right. It's not simply dressing in the way that mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle or whatever you just came up with in your own studies has always been. If, if someone has pointed out and the scripture has told us what is modest dress and now we are convicted, holy attire is conforming to God's standard and not any other standard. And so we need to apply that principle of holiness. That is by submitting to the standard of God. One other thing that we might think about when we're considering the general principles of godliness as they're applied to modest dress is that we need to have a love for fellow man. We noted that especially as it pertains to the sexually attractive end of the spectrum of immodest attire, that that has uh, an effect on other men. And and it would work from a, a man to a woman as well as a woman to a man. We understand that it's especially the latter that is emphasized. I think that's why the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, emphasized women in First Timothy chapter 2, just like it is in our culture. In that culture, it was especially a struggle for women. And that's, in fact, how God created us. And what we need to do is have love for each other. And applying that to the principle of modesty, we dress in such a way that expresses that love for another person. Matthew, the 22nd chapter, Jesus noted that love for fellow man is only second to love for God. They asked what the greatest commandment is. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're to take that seriously, it applies in every area of our life. But I want us to notice what he says in verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And that's because God defines and lays out what love is for him and for each other in his law. If we're keeping the law of God, we'll be loving God. Now, we may be able to keep the law of God in a hypocritical way and not be loving God, but, but that true love for God and where we're, we're submitting to him in sincerity is only accomplished by submitting to his law in totality. And that's the same thing that applies to man. If we're to love God by keeping his commandments, we love our neighbor by keeping the commandments that pertain to our relationship to our neighbor God has given to us. John 14, 15 Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we read in Romans 13, the love of the neighbor. That's the second command. And this is what is described in Romans 13. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet it. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All of the laws that have been given to us by God that we might put under that category of neighborly laws is how we love our neighbor as ourself. It's not a mere affectionate love. There may be affection involved, but love as it is defined in Matthew 22 as that which on all the law and the prophets hang on is, is the agapeo or agape love, which is an action. It's a selfless love of service that always does what is needed or required or necessary for its object. It's more easily shown than it is defined, and we see it through Scripture. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. 
It's not that we were lovable, but we needed that, and God gave us what we needed, a sacrifice for sins. And so we love each other by submitting to God's law. Apply that to modesty. We need to dress modestly to avoid becoming a stumbling block before our brother. We need to make sure that we are dressing in line with God's standard instead of something of our own or someone else's standard so that we're not causing our brethren to sin or other people to sin. In 1 John 2 and verse 6, of all that is in the world, John says there is the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, and right there in the middle, the lust of the eyes. He's saying you can sin with your eyes, and we know that good and well. Jesus said it in Matthew 5 and verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. We've mentioned that. We've established that. We need to understand that. If that is the case and our apparel is seen, then our apparel needs to be in such a way that would not cause that brother or sister to sin. We need to dress out of love for their souls. God forbid that we become the cause for someone stumbling. Luke 17 describes the wretchedness of such an offense. It is impossible that no offenses offenses should come, Jesus says. He's saying it's going to happen. Someone's going to sin and someone's going to fall short. But woe to him through whom they do come. He said it would have been better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck that he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones, especially as it pertains to those babes in Christ. But that would pertain to anyone. Woe to him through whom offenses come. If you are the cause for the stumbling of a brother or sister in Christ, woe is you. And so we need to provide what is honorable for all men. In 2 Corinthians 8, 21, Paul mentioned that he provided honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. I'm living for God, he says, but I'm also mindful of my fellow man, and that is what is inherent within Christianity. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32, he says, We give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. He's speaking of liberties in that area, of eating meat offered to idols, How much more would it apply to things of sin? I don't want a brother or sister in Christ to sin. I'm definitely not going to be a cause of it. And so I'm going to provide what is profitable for them. Practically, that would be seen in such a way that we read in 1 Timothy 5 and verses 1 and 2. How do we treat each other? The Apostle Paul gave instruction to the young evangelist Timothy, especially how to rebuke and exhort other Christians, especially in Ephesus. Notice He goes through various classes of Christians as it pertains to their age and gender. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. Notice this, especially younger women as sisters. How? With all purity. Essentially, what we can apply there is that as we're Christians before each other, we need to treat each other and the opposite sex with purity. That's what he's telling Timothy. You work with them in the Lord. You may need to rebuke them. You may need to exhort them, but always maintain purity before the opposite sex because there's a very real temptation that is there and the devil is good at his job. So you treat them with purity. And in the realm of modesty, that would be to dress modestly. Don't dress in a way that would sexually attract another. Make sure that you're dressed in a pure fashion. You know, there... It's, it's so shameful. I've heard of, of, of uh, men falling into that temptation of 
of the lust of the eyes in a worship period where they're maybe serving on the Lord's table and they get to a, a woman who's not dressed modestly. Maybe maybe the shirt is too low cut and, and they go to pass that, that fruit of the vine or, or the unleavened bread and serving the Lord in the Lord's Supper and, and they've got to avert their eyes lest they sin with their eyes. That shouldn't be the case. Not in services and certainly not at any other point in our lives. We avoid fault in that matter by dressing according to God's standard of modestly, modesty. And that not only shows love for God, but it shows love for fellow man. We need to make sure we understand the power we wield. And women, especially, this is more applicable to you. I'm not saying that, that men cannot have some power of sexual attraction, but this is especially something that women who are Christians need to be careful about. Understand what power you wield. And, and I'll tell you just by things I've heard and, and my short experience in and marriage and, and other things that, that women don't always get it. They're, they're wired differently than men. And that's seen in scripture. It's scientifically proven. And some women just don't want to accept that they do have a certain power. Others know it and they wield it in dangerous ways. But God says, dress with modesty, that is, with purity. And I've heard this before from a Christian. It's not my fault that men have dirty minds. Don't tell me how to dress. It's my body. I can do with it what I want. We've already mentioned how ungodly a statement that is in previous lessons. But it's not my fault that men have dirty minds. They shouldn't be looking at me like that in any fashion, no matter what. You know, it's true that they should never look at you in that way, no matter how you're dressed. And maybe there are men that have dirty minds. Certainly there are. No doubt about it. But especially when we're thinking about brothers in Christ, we, we view them through the lens of love that believes all things. And we want to think the best of that person. We don't think they have a dirty mind, but we know that there is that temptation that the devil even works among us. He's always at work. Just because we're members of the church doesn't mean he's left us alone. If, if anything, he's working on us more. And the godly woman acknowledges that. And doesn't pawn it off on this idea that all men have dirty minds and it's not my problem, but recognizes out of love for that person's soul that I have a power that could crumble that man. And I'm going to make sure that that doesn't happen. Paul told young Timothy to flee youthful lusts. In Proverbs 6, the father gives wisdom to his son. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. In chapter 7, we looked at that section. And the father spoke about how that young man did not know what he was up against. He didn't understand the danger that lay ahead. So the proper reaction of a godly woman it's to not really worry about what's going on in the mind of that man so much as they are to be worried about what they have as a part in the matter, what, what part they play in the matter, what, what dress that they're wearing, because it does matter and it can indeed lead someone into sin. Certainly, every man has a personal responsibility. Job spoke to this in Job 31 and verse 1. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? That is, to lust after her. I have a responsibility as a man. Other men have responsibilities as men to make a covenant with their eyes. I may see something 
and, and that initial sight is not sin in of itself, but I'm not going to keep looking at it to lust. I'm going to bounce my eyes away from that. That's a covenant with my eyes. And that's my, my responsibility. That's each man's responsibility. But the woman's responsible for what she wears. And if that man sees a woman who is dressed immodestly, and lusts after her, that's sin and that's on his account, that's his problem, he's going to answer before God about that. But if it is that that woman is not dressed modestly according to God's standards, she'll answer too. Love for fellow man will lead to adorning ourselves in modest apparel. Thirdly, we need to realize the influence that we're to have in the world. That's a principle of godliness that is seen so many places in Scripture. We're commanded in Matthew 5 and verses 13 through 16 to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're to season the world to the degree with our works of obedience before God that would lead them to obey God. We're to light up the world with the light of Christ so that they can come out of the darkness of sin and error and come into the light of Christ in the gospel. But this can't happen if we're flavorless. This can't happen if our light is hidden by conforming to the darkness of this world. We need to realize that we have so much influence as Christians and we have a responsibility to influence the world in positive ways toward godliness and obedience. And our dress will affect that, whether positively or negatively. We need to ask the question, do they see your good works? As Matthew 5 and verse 16 says they should. And that's the very context of 1 Timothy chapter 2. They're not seeing your, your flashy and ostentatious dress, certainly not your sexually attractive dress, but instead what they're seeing is what is proper for a woman professing godliness, namely good works. That's what they see. That's the emphasis. Other things are in the background. Christ is in the forefront. Do they see your good works? Or are we just like them? Especially as it pertains to our dress. Is our profession of godliness congruous with our dress. That's the whole point of 1 Timothy chapter 2. It needs to be. Romans chapter 2 speaks of hypocrisy among the Jews where they indeed had the word of God and they fancied themselves teachers of ignorant individuals and so on and so forth. And Paul reproved them for their hypocrisy and the fact that it caused the Gentiles to blaspheme. He said, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach a man shouldn't steal, do you steal? You who say don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. We are those who speak of holiness, of godliness, of purity, sexually and otherwise. We are those who speak of chastity. That's what 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about. Your chaste conduct accompanied with fear. And we speak about those things, especially in contrast to the worldliness and immorality that we see that is in society. And we fancy ourselves as those who are followers of the one true God, who've got it right. And I think we do. I think we were able to know that God's blessed us with that. But while we speak about purity and chastity and, and sexual purity and abstinence and all of those pure terms and words that the Bible calls us to, are we dressed like it? 
How are we going to influence those to a life that avoids sexual immorality if we are promoting sexuality through our dress and seeking to attract others sexually who is not our our partner, who is not our spouse, who is not our wife or our husband, but, but other individuals in the world. We're attracting them sexually with our dress, but we're saying you shall not commit fornication. That doesn't really add up. We're not going to have much influence on them in a positive way if that's what we're doing. That not only includes what we're wearing, but the places we go. And there are so many other things we could talk about where this could be applied, but do we go to places where immodest dress, and I'll emphasize this, is inherent. Immodest dress is out there, just like alcohol is out there. But there's a difference between going to a restaurant that may have beer on the menu and going to a bar where people go to drink beer, period. And there's a difference between going into the world where people are dressed immodestly everywhere and going to a water park where it's inherent within the activity or a public swimming pool where it's inherent within the activity or public beaches that are filled with people laying out in the sun in their bikinis and immodest dress where it's inherent within the activity. Are we in places like that? Are we posting pictures online? It blows my mind sometimes how we can see Christians on social media They'll be liking things and posting things themselves, whether it's them dressed immodestly or someone else dressed immodestly or, or them drinking alcohol or doing other ungodly things. And they think because it's in the world of social media, it's different. Even though everyone can see it, it's through social media. It's not as big of a deal, but it's exactly the same thing. What are people going to think about us? And not just with what we post, but I know we're getting into a little modern thing, more of the, the millennial generation, but when we like those pictures or share those pictures, you know what? When we click that like button on Facebook, that has nothing to do with us. We know we like it. Why are we clicking like? Because it shows up on everyone else's newsfeed. And so when we click something that has immodest apparel that is praised and glorified and out there, and we click like on that and it shows up in someone else's newsfeed that so-and-so likes this picture and there's just immodesty right there in your face, their conclusion is it's all right with them and they even agree with it. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul condemned the Jews for even approving of those things that the Gentiles were involved in. How are we going to be the influence we're called to be? if we are involved in such things. And lastly, I think that one thing that is important to talk about when considering modest attire and making those applications is the, the godly principle of raising children in a godly way. Raising them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Parents have a grave responsibility with the fathers at the helm. Ephesians 6 and verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of of the Lord. And I would say that the mothers have a part to play in this as well. Proverbs 31 speaks of that industrious woman who is godly and, and fears God and, and what she does to her home. It says in verse 26 that she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, the husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. Notice this. This is what all the context is about, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. 
So all that instruction, watching over the ways of the house, it may have to do with some physical things. She clothes her family. She loves them. She cares for them. But she's also trying to raise her children up in the fear of the Lord because she fears the Lord as well. That's the wisdom she's imparting. So mothers and fathers both have a part to play in this. You need to raise the children to know what is modest attire so that when they get old enough to finally comprehend the implications of it, there's no question what the standard is because they've been trained in it. You know, negligence in this area shows a disregard for God ourselves. In 1 Samuel 2 and verse 29, Eli is given as an example of that in her lesson. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and offering, God says to him, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. They were priests who were not doing what God had told them to do as priests. They were they were taking advantage of the sacrifices of God and, and doing it a against his standard and and Eli not restraining them was manifesting the same character before God. Verse 13 of chapter 3 to Samuel, God said, I have told Eli that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Parents will give an answer for how they raise their children and negligence in this area will inevitably lead to that generation that will rise up like we read in Judges 2 and verse 10 who doesn't know the Lord. Judges 2 and verse 10 says that when all the generation had been gathered to their fathers, that is, those who were led by Joshua, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. What happened there? There's a number of things, I think, but one of the things that we can conclude is is that they did not teach them sufficiently. How do you not know the Lord if your parents have been teaching the Lord to you? And that's the exact command that Deuteronomy 6 calls us to as parents. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. If they're not taught what modest apparel is. They will be raised in ignorance and will be sinning before God as they don't dress modestly. You know, how else will they know? People who are raising their children and the training and admonition of the Lord inevitably will reach that point where they're teaching modest attire. And here's the question. How else will they know? You know, training in Ephesians 6 and verse 4 doesn't necessarily suggest the immediate understanding and fullness of what is being taught. We teach our children that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Could they explain the significance of that in great detail? No, but we teach it to them and they know it. Training does not imply they know fully. Bauer and Gingrich defines the Greek word paideia, which is translated training there in Ephesians 6, 4, as the act of providing guidance for responsible living, upbringing, training, instruction, chiefly as it is attained by discipline and correction. So we're providing children with the guidance for responsible living, and that would include the way they dress themselves. It's not necessarily that they know why all of the sudden they don't know, and that's the point. We're trying to train them in that way that is responsible before God. We provide guidance so they know when they grow older what is modest dress. You might ask the question, when does this start? I want us to consider what is said about Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. The Apostle Paul said, From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. We know that he was taught before by 
his mother Eunice and grandmother Lois. They are the ones who taught him from childhood the holy scriptures that are able to make him wise. But that word childhood is the Greek word brephos, and it means a very small child, a baby, or an infant. It's used for the babe leaped in Elizabeth's womb of John the Baptist. It's used of uh, an infant still in utero. It's used of a, a baby in a manger. It's used of, of one who is a very small child. You know, we think about parenting in other realms and, and we start teaching children very early on or so the scripture calls us to do that and we teach them about God. We teach them about faith. And again, they may not understand all the implications. They don't know it to the detail and they may not know why, but we teach them nonetheless because we're training them. We're, we're getting them the basics and foundations are being laid. And so why is the topic of modest attire any different than any other topic? We tell them not to lie. We tell them not to hit. We tell them not to mistreat others. But we're not going to tell them about modest attire because they're just children. They're just kids. That's inconsistent. How are they going to know when they grow up? I'm proud of how my sister is raising her daughter. We were, we were walking through the mall one time, me and Zoe with them, when we were looking, I think, at dresses for something. Might have been for our, our wedding. They were shopping for dresses. And I remember Sawyer walked by a mannequin and said, Mom, you can't wear that. It's not down to the knee. She knew. Could she explain why that's wrong? No, not at all. But she had been taught. You know, we talked about sexually attractive dress, and it's, it's such an abhorrent thing to go out into society today and see that parents are sexualizing their kids. It doesn't matter that they're, they're just kids. They're going to be just adults eventually, and that's how they'll be dressing. And we wonder what happened. There was no training. There was no raising of a child. Consider this. If a child is, is dressed with attire that doesn't meet God's standard of modest dress because they're just a child. We don't need to worry about that. They're just a child. When, we're going, when are we going to decide the point where we need to start telling them they need to dress in this way of God's modest standard? It's arbitrary. Who decides the age when it's, it's appropriate to start telling that child you need to start dressing this way? You're old enough now. Well, who said? Why weren't they old enough yesterday? And then when we do that, maybe let's throw it out there. Let's say 12, because that seems to be the age. Jesus went to the temple when he was 12. We think, well, maybe that's when they're starting to think about these things. Let's just say 12. All right, you were dressed immodestly up to this point. Here's your 12th birthday. Now that you're this old, I think you should start dressing this way. They're going to start asking why. Why was it wrong? Why is it wrong now, but it wasn't wrong yesterday? And what are we going to say to them? If we're raising our children up, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's going to be all-inclusive. And each parent has, has their own way of doing it. Maybe they, they, they know their children better than anyone else, whatever, and, and, and they're going to make those decisions. But, but following Scripture, the teaching starts early. They may not understand all of it, but that's the point. They're being trained. They're being corrected. They're being, being directed in the right way. And God has called us to that. That's why so many are not dressing modestly, who are indeed Christians, because they haven't been taught what modest dress is. And I don't doubt it one bit that there are so many people who, who are Christians, members of the Lord's church, that are dressing so inappropriate, inappropriately, not modestly, who do have honest hearts. They just don't know. My mom and dad were one of them. They weren't taught, so they didn't dress modestly. Then they were taught, and they changed. But we can solve the problem early on. 
by raising our children in such instruction. There are, again, so many other things that we could talk about as it pertains to general principles of, of godliness and applying that to the specific realm of modest apparel. But I hope those were sufficient this evening. And I hope the study was informative, was edifying, and was encouraging. And I encourage you to make the proper application in your life. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel, we want to offer you the invitation to do so. We don't know if we have tomorrow. We don't know if we have the rest of tonight. So we urge you to obey the Lord Jesus by being baptized in water for the remission of sins before it's too late. And if there's any other spiritual thing we can assist you with tonight, come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.